All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am Jay Taylor. I'm talking to you from uh, New York City on the first day of September 2020. And I do want to remind you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com. We like to plug Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to chenpicks.com for that. And we also like to plug Michael Oliver's wonderful letter as well. OliverMSA.com is the place to go for that. And we're fortunate to have Michael with us. He'll, in just a few minutes, we'll be getting his comments on various important issues. So I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show and making it uh, one of the top shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And also, really do read everything you send along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors, because without them, there would be no show. Our sponsors for this week, Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Lion One Metals. And I do want to welcome two new sponsors this week, Grand Portage and GMV Minerals. As uh, with all sponsors in this show... Uh, these are companies that I have recommended in my newsletter uh, and that I have purchased personally as well. Uh, it's a time when uh, we can pick and choose the companies that we have as sponsors because there's so many good ones out there with money and capital moving into the gold sector and the mining exploration sector. This is uh, the best time of my life in terms of this industry. Uh, there's a lot of other things that aren't so good going around, but uh, the mining sector is certainly one of those bright spots, the precious metals sector especially. Uh, in just a few minutes, I'll be speaking uh, to Michael Hudson. Uh, he, is, uh, he is the president of Hannon Metals. They have a massive sedimentary hosted copper silver project in Peru, just absolutely enormous. Uh, it's, it's one of those projects that's certainly way beyond what a small junior mining company can handle. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see uh, Hannon announcing a major mining company coming into the picture sometime. Well, I don't know how soon, but I think it's almost going to happen because there's so few new projects like this one out there uh, and uh, that the big copper guys have to have. So keep your eyes on Hannon, and of course, as I say, we'll be talking to Michael Hudson in just a few minutes from now. Another sponsor of mine, Lion One, came up with some spectacular news this past week, providing further confirmation that it is on to a major alkaline gold deposit uh, that is in, in Fiji. Uh, and uh, I'll be passing along some of this exciting information to my readers this weekend in my newsletter. And one of the biggest sleepers, I believe, among my sponsors is Sitka Gold Corp. Now, selling at around 20 cents in U.S., 
I'm expecting to have Corwin Coe, he's the president of the company, on the show next week with us. But he has a drill campaign going on in Nevada and the car- looking for a Carlin-style deposit as well as a Yukon. And again, with such a minuscule market cap, these are the kinds of stocks that can just absolutely explode in percentage terms, much, much higher levels. So next week, Corwin Coe, uh, assuming he's available, and I think he will be. And I've seen some naysayers uh, comment about noble resources in recent days. Investors seem disappointed that the stock hasn't moved all that much in recent months. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that Novo is at that point in time in its cycle. It's made its discovery, and now it's doing the engineering and getting ready for production. The a- acquisition of a mill recently means that it's going to be moving production time up very markedly. In fact, I think we may start to see some production before the end of the year. What I think most people are missing is the fact that this new mechanical separation technology that has come along is going to be a game changer for Novo. I think for a lot of other companies as well, Dr. Henning has talked about this issue uh, on my show a couple of times, but I really truly believe that people don't understand how good the, uh, how, how robust the profit margin should be using this new technology, uh, and as well, uh, the, the extent and the massive amount of ground and, and ounces that Novo uh, will be able to come up with in the years ahead. Well, those are my views anyway. I'm not saying... Uh, that you should go to the ba- to the bank or you should go and, and buy the stock right now. Just on my words, you need to really do your own due diligence on all of these companies. Uh, but, of course, I try to help you do that with my newsletter. Uh, go to miningstocks.com if you'd like to sign up. I also want to mention my course. Uh, thanks to our, to our son, Scott, who suggested, Dad, I think there's a lot of new people wanting to get into this industry, wanting to buy gold and silver and other related products. Why don't you write a uh, – why don't you provide a course for them? So – I've now completed the filming of this course. I've titled it Investing 101, Gold and Silver in the Mining Shares. Uh, And the first couple of courses will have to do with the economic uh, and political events that are taking place, not only in the United States, but around the world, that have set the stage for what I believe is most certainly the, the biggest gold bull market for gold and silver in my lifetime. The third lesson will talk about different ways that you can invest in gold and silver and the different derivative products that are out there, including the gold shares and silver shares. In the fourth lesson, I'm going to talk about the economics of mining and what you need to look for with these junior exploration companies, because as soon as they start exploring for a project, you have to keep asking yourself, can this be a mine? Uh, And then, you know, either make a decision to stay or to get out of that stock based on the conclusions. And then in the fifth lesson, Dr. Quentin Henning, who is uh, the most, I think, the most sought-after exploration geologist in the world, uh, he's provided a very insightful uh, dialogue with me and basically telling us what he looks for before he decides to get involved. And many companies want Dr. Hinton, Dr. Quentin Henning to be uh, involved with them as they explore and develop projects. Well, he can't, uh, he can't sign up with all of them. So what does he look for? What really excites him about a project and causes him to sign on as an advisor to these various companies? And then Chen Lin will also be with me in the fifth lesson uh, he'll talk about what he uses, the uh, the combination of trading and investing uh, to do a remarkably great job in terms of um, uh, his return on investment. So and just a tremendous, uh, successful investor over the last number of years since I've learned to know him. The topic of today's show is un- an unexpected systemic crisis for sure. Alistair McLeod and Michael Oliver and, as I said, Michael Hudson are uh, will be with me today. Now, Alistair stated in his August 13th essay, and I quote, 
downturns in bank credit expansion always lead to systemic problems. We are on the edge of, a, of such a downturn, which thanks to everyone's focus on COVID-19 is unexpected. On March 23, markets stopped worrying about in deflation and realized that monetary inflation is the certain outlook. That day, the Fed promised unlimited monetary stimulus for both consumers and businesses, and the dollar began to fall. Commercial banks everywhere are massively leveraged, and their exposure to bad debts and a, a cyclical banking crisis is now certain to wipe many of them out, end of quote. Well, Alistair will talk about the impact uh, on these uh, market events and uh, the impact on the dollar, and by extension, the price of gold that's denominated in the dollars, of course. And he has really focused on the globally systemic important banks, the GSIPs for short. Uh, those are topics that he'll be talking about. Very important. And also, he uh, I want to ask him his, uh, his latest thoughts on the digital currencies that central banks now seem to be getting ready to try to implement. So we should be some very interesting uh, discussions with Alistair McLeod in the second half of today's show. Right after the first commercial break, Michael Hudson will be with me. Uh, he heads up, as I said, Han and Metals. Uh, to talk about the wonderful things that are going on down there in Peru with that uh, fantastic sedimentary deposit, uh, gold, uh, a copper and silver deposit in Peru. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is back, and I'm trying to talk as fast as I can so we can find as much time as possible for Michael because people are out there complaining, Taylor, you talk too much. Shut your mouth and let Michael talk. So thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jake. Good to be back. Yeah, so let's talk about the markets that are really uh, have you most interested right now. The dollar seems to be getting weaker, as, as Alistair McLeod uh, mentioned. Uh, he says it started around March 23rd. Uh, but what are your thoughts about the dollar and then, and then some of the other key markets that we look at? Well, it, it's, uh, the, the dollar is a major bear right now. Uh, in fact, it's been a major bear for, for a handful of decades. If you look back at the dollar index back uh-huh. in the 70s and 80s, it's a big, big huge layered declines. And uh, it's resumed. Uh, the action of the last two months for us convinced us that the major sell signal we issued in early 2017 is back on course. Uh, we even did a study of a 10-year average oscillator of the dollar. Normally, we look at when we look at annual, we look at three-year and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But no, 10-year. The 10-year says if you drop to 91 cash dollar index, right now it's trading at 92 area. If you drop down to 91 this year, you're likely to drop rapidly to 84 Wow! the next step. Now, it, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but in, in the foreign exchange, the major currencies, that kind of percent drop is huge. Mm-hmm. It's single digit, but it's huge. So it's effectively a crash type drop. So if the dollar hits 91, I think there could be another rapid drop here. So watch that, that 91 level. No doubt that'll have impact on other markets and, uh, or reflect other events that are going on. Um, gold's behaving quite well. Silver, of course, has come to life like a monster, and we think it will remain the monster uh, of the gold-silver market. We think it will be the leader. Mm-hmm. And I, I strongly suspect that the two peaks at $50 over the last several decades will come out by next year sometime. And I don't know where silver's going on the upside, I, and, and nor do I know on gold in terms of ultimately uh, we're facing a swirly in the world, uh, political, economic, philosophical, monetary, you know, you name it. It's all coming together now. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, you can't just look at gold and silver and technically analyze them and say, well, you know, they're going to do this or that. You've you got to look at the T-bond market, which we think is living on its last leg. So the, right now I still think there could be one more surge in the bond market as a flight to safety from the stock market at some point here in the next few months. But beyond that, then the bond market looks vulnerable in terms mm-hmm. of lower prices, higher yield. That will be a dramatic scare event if that occurs. Uh, that yeah. will, you know, right now, you buy bonds when stocks are weak, okay, they're, so they're inverse. But mm-hmm. if yields ever started to rise on a trending basis, that would be very negative for stocks, and they would be joined at the hip at that point in terms of downside. Downside mm-hmm. in price and bonds, downside in stocks. So we're looking for that, but probably that's a next-year event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index has broken out. Our first breakout level had occurred at the end of uh, yesterday, so at the end of the month. And uh, we think there's a likely a, a major surge coming in the broad commodity category between now and the end of the year. And by major, uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index right now is trading at 73 area. Now, if you go back and look over the last decade or so, it's been up you know, to 180 or something. So, you know, it's not exactly uh, expensive. Uh, we no. think this surge could go to 110 to 120 very rapidly. Well, you do the math on a, something that's 70 and go into 120, let's say, that's a huge percent gain. Yeah, sure. And we think it could unfold in a matter of, you know, a quarter or two. So, uh, again, for our subscribers, we, we prescribe very specific numbers that are trigger numbers, and we've hit one of them this last month. And there's another one not far above. And I think that would shock a lot of markets because uh, I don't think anybody's really looking at a broad commodity upturn. Mm-hmm. They're so used to it being deflated. Yeah. That will that'll affect things like you know bond yields. Uh, yeah. Those yeah. people long well, bonds will have to start to think again. <laughs> well, yeah, that that that's really right. And and I wonder, um, you know, if 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 yields start to rise like that, Michael, then it means the central banks are losing control. I would think over the long end of the market. Yes, I I quite agree, and I think they they will lose control over the long end of the market. They may control the overnight, but that that won't matter. Also, if you or continue to be mesmerized like Trump is of the V bottom um, and you, the new highs in the stock market, stand back and really look at the stock market. Okay, don't just look at the NASDAQ 100, which is being driven by six symbols that comprise yeah. 48% of that index wow. weighting that are causing it to go vertical. Look at the fact that the Dow is not making new highs. Uh, New York Composite Index is not making new highs. Russell 2000 is not making new highs. The Eurostox 50, the blue chips of Europe, are not making new highs. It's a very narrow event, and it's very delusionary and uh, delusional. It, another, another thing struck me, the, uh, how much time do we have left, Jay? Uh, the, Take another minute or two. Another minute or two. Pause on this issue. The Venezuelan, the Caracas, Venezuela stock market is up a thousand percent this year. Wow! Yeah. Does that matter? No, not if the currency is so, worthless. Well, I mean, the the the, the, the currency, the M two of Venezuela, is up a thousand percent. Yeah. So when the Federal Reserve starts to put the pedal and drive our M two vertically, and it is going vertical. Uh, Quit paying so much attention to nominal prices if the money unit is being degraded rapidly. Because, yeah, no, we're not Venezuela yet, but, you know, we're getting to be a, some version of Venezuela. 
and that were driven by the degradation in the money unit. So at that point, it's possible you could have every asset in the world going up, and it doesn't matter. The issue becomes, for an investor, which assets have least risk and the greatest percent gain potential. Mm-hmm. And we argue it's gold, silver, and commodity category in that order. And the other stuff that's looking good right now is probably either going to lag or actually go down. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. it, it's time to put your, your thinking hat on and not just look at nominal new highs, quote-unquote. Well, you're talking about money uh, and, and, you know, money supply in Venezuela. I would suggest some of the things we're seeing in places like Portland and Seattle and Minneapolis and Chicago and New York and elsewhere around the country looks a little bit like what we used to see in Venezuela as well. But that's another yep. that's another story. Uh, just real quickly, maybe 30 seconds or so, you, you mentioned when we had you on for a longer period last week that you were quite certain that Biden would win, uh, and somebody didn't like to hear that. That sent yeah. an email in, and uh, and <laughs> I said, "Well, you know." On that. Uh, so, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Because I my, think the my polls thoughts are, are that we're headed for the giant swirly of errors that have yeah. been compounded over decades, and especially yes. since two thousand nine. These are financial, monetary, and uh, they're based on philosophical, political philosophy errors. Uh-huh. Okay, now they cause real world consequences. Um, the issue now for Trump is he was he was suffering badly in the polls. RCP average showed him down 7% or so. That's changing a bit. And what's changing is the fear factor. And the fear factor, of course, is directly connected to the events that are about to unfold. And some of them are going to be violent, and they're going to get more and more violent, I suspect. Uh, I'm not encouraging it. I'm just saying that's just the reality out there. And we're seeing it happen. And as those, if those events continue to escalate between now and the election, then the election is a toss-up. Uh, he, he, Trump might actually pull it out. Now, I would argue this. Uh, by the way, Jeff Dice to the Mises Institute made the same point, so I'm, I'm in effect echoing what he said. Uh, regardless of the outcome, we're in a, in a crisis. But the Democrats, if they won, it would be more peaceful initially in the first few months after the election. But if Trump mm-hmm. was elected... Expect violence rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect the left is going to explode. Yeah. Well, you would think in so. Mass if he got uh, elected. Right. So, given yeah. the given their reaction to the first uh, time yeah. he was elected, I would I would I would agree with you. Uh, all right, Michael. Well, thank you. We'll have to leave it go at that. We're out of time and then some. But thank you so much for your for your valuable insights. Always always appreciated. Well, folks, we are going to go to a break now. But when we come back, Michael Hudson will be with me to talk about Hannon Metals. Don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Michael Hudson of Hannon Metals. Michael is a, a director, a CEO, and chairman of Hannon Metals. It's a company I've picked up earlier uh, this year, actually real early this year, because my friend uh, from 321 Gold, Bob Moriarty, uh, picked, uh, picked, the, picked this company as his top pick for the year. And I said, well, Bob is Bob's a pretty smart guy. I better take a look at it. And... Uh, I'm really glad I did because we've already done very well with the stock in, in my newsletter. And uh, so I'm really happy to have Michael with me because they have, a, I think Hannon has a project that is you really want to keep your keep your eyes on. Um, so it has a great deal of potential. That's so why I'm really happy that Michael could join me today. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be back. I'm really glad to have you here with us. Um, when we look at the, uh, the project, your project is in Peru. And you've, you're sort of landlocked in Australia right now. Uh, how are things going there with your project? It's a San Martin project. Uh, it, it's a copper-silver sedimentary-hosted project that is—it's absolutely enormous. The target is huge. Uh, but have you been able to get some work done in spite of COVID-19, Michael? Jay, it's a, the answer, simple answer is not not a lot on the ground, but a lot from a, a remote point of view. I suppose is 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 the reality. We we do have people. On the ground, but uh, they're local people um, working from a social licensing point of view. So, so what uh, has been happening in Peru is is terrible. Um, you know, it's I think it's it's up there in the top four in terms of cases. Um, it, it spread from Lima, which has you know reasonable medical care, out into the regions you know many months ago, which have which have less support and. Uh, and then, you know, we're very fortunate. I'm sitting here in Australia where we can literally pay people not to work, but uh, people in Peru don't have that benefit. So they need to get out there in society and, and, and earn, earn a daily wage to keep their family fed, essentially. So it's, it's, it's very hard for them to contain it like it has been elsewhere. So the outcomes have been uh, very, very bad. And, and uh, San Martin, which is the, the project name we're working in, it's also named after the department or the province in which uh, which we're working is, um, is is still in lockdown. Um, there's there's six or seven provinces in lockdown in Peru. They've opened up some of the the country, but uh, the reality is that most people are not working in Peru. Uh, there may be a few exceptions, but but uh, there's a whole lot of risks for staff. There's a whole lot of risks for local people, and then there's a whole lot of reasons that local people, wherever they are, um, whether it's here in Australia or or in the jungles of Peru, don't want foreigners, um, essentially people from outside the area, coming in um, because there's that fear. So, so no, we haven't we haven't done anything on the ground and since March, but um, but we've been working very hard and there's been a regular news flow. So we had a, a lot of work done uh, at the start of this year. So that uh, took us uh, many months past March up until you know, only a couple of months ago we were having samples returned and and then we've been able to do a lot of work 
uh, remotely in terms of satellite uh, interpretation and 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 really uh, sitting down and, and pulling together some of the information and data that we've had. So so the project certainly advanced, but um, but outside of the social work, which is critical, the most important part. Uh, you know, we've uh, we haven't had geologists there, but uh, but helping um, with uh, medical supplies and food packs and and all those things that are the most uh, critical thing, really. I mean, geology can wait. This is a huge opportunity, and uh, and it's and it's been there for you know hundreds of millions of years, essentially, and uh, and it's not it's not going anywhere um, in in this in this um, in this world. But um, but the most important thing we can do is support the communities at the moment. Right, and, and certainly uh, curry some good favor, um, some good political favor, favor just by doing the right thing, by helping those people at this point in time. That's that's very good. And so, talk a little bit about what you've been able to discover remotely about your project. It is, and maybe before you talk about that, talk about the size of the project. For people that don't know it, maybe there's a reason to be very excited about this project. Yeah, it's been you know not as active as you'd like it to be, but I'm I'm very excited about about your project, but tell, tell our listeners that may not be familiar with it what the possibilities are for this uh, San Martin project. And I, I look on your map and I see there are four areas, four areas, very extensive areas on this huge property, the San Martin property, where you've gathered up high-grade copper, silver, uh, assays and and so I suppose those are some of your top targets, are they? They are at the moment. It's uh, it it uh, as we've said early days. So we're, we're a first mover into this basin, and uh, we secured tenure from late 2018 all through 2019, and and really got on the ground at the end of 2019 and 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 at the start of this year, 2020, and and uh, started to to pull the the project and understanding to. Vast area, as you've said, we've got uh, tenure um, mining concessions over 120 kilometres, and uh, and and the target we uh, we we've got uh, we've got these this, this sediment hosted copper. Now, sediment hosted copper is the second most prolific form of copper mined in the world after porphyry coppers. Um, so they form and they form very large deposits. The Kufashifa in Poland or the Central African copper belt are, are the key examples. And we've got another style here. It's slightly different, but it's the same model, and and it extends over such large areas. We're seeing basically pancake levels of copper and silver, and there's a quite a, a significant silver uh, credit here. The Kufashifa in Poland is the world's largest single silver producer, even though it's a byproduct from ah, the copper mines there. Yeah. So, so this is a copper silver play, and and uh, and. And what what your question was specifically? What have we been able to do remotely right. to, to narrow it down? So so we've we've just got on the ground over the last eight to 12, eight months essentially, and and had you know hundreds and hundreds of samples, thousands of samples um, that we've been able to put in context geologically into that pancake layer, if you like, over such a vast area. But because it's uh, you know it's jungle area, it's it's very hard work. You know, you're literally cutting your way. I mean, we've done the easy stuff along roads, and then we cut our way through the forest. So it, it, everything is sort of a bit jumbled and out of context um, as we're making the discoveries. But we've been able to come back with satellite data, and there's some amazing uh, the resolution of satellite data available to civilians these days is is quite incredible. So we've been able to map the geological formations from that satellite information 
and and put all those samples in context and become predictive, importantly, where further mineralised samples have the potential to exist. So so we're, it, it's, it, the, the project's in, um, in a much bigger framework. We've de-risked it a lot, and that's really essentially what we do as geologists, uh, de-risks the projects, and, and hopefully some of them progress towards mines. And, and um, I mean, that's a long way down the path, but, um, but we've, we've advanced the project significantly, I think, is, uh, is the summary comment. And so you say pancake-like. Are they are they flat-lying uh, structures? And as far as you know, at this stage, yeah, it's uh, it's it's essentially flat-lying. It's dipping at about thirty degrees, and um, for the most part, um, not flat as in uh, horizontal. But but this is it's an important point because these sediment-hosted systems are generally quite thin. I mean, in in uh, in the Kufa Schiefer in in Poland, it's averages around three meters thickness but it continues over you know, tens and tens of kilometres, and they do blow out to tens of metres thickness, but for the most part, they average, they're quite thin. And so potential mineability is important in, in anything we look at, even at early stage exploration. And if we had, if we had vertical bodies, they'd be much, much harder to, to, to mine, in fact, almost impossible to mine economically. But having a, a, a shallowly dipping bodies uh, makes them the mining techniques that we could use in those styles of bodies and room and pillar is specifically the type that we'd use in a shallowly dipping body. Uh, it, it, it's much more economic. So, you know, if this was all upright and vertical, it would be mu- of much less of interest. So it's simple things like orientation count. Sure. Oh, very important. And um, you, you can't get in there to work now, so obviously you're not going to be drilling anytime soon, I suppose. I mean, we're always looking for drill results on these early projects. Absolutely. Our aim was to hopefully be drilling by the end of this year. Right? We, 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 see a, we saw an eight-month process to permitting, and we were looking to just start that uh, back in March, and, and that did not happen, the start of that permitting process, because uh, um, well, everything else happened around the world very quickly at that, that period of time. So drilling is absolutely critical. Early drilling is, is very important to understand projects as well, as well as giving good numbers and, and excitement to the market. And, and, and it is, the, as, as we all call it, the truth detector. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a true sampling methodology to, to, to determine what you have and, and, and put it into three dimensions. The good news is, I suppose, is that there's a whole lot of new laws and regulations being being talked about all around the world, and Peru is no different. So the new laws in Peru are, are specifically around re- reinvigorating the economy and, and promoting development post-COVID. And, and one of the big issues in Peru has always been, over the last number of years, the slowness of permitting. But uh, they're, they're talking about bringing in new new ways to, no, to fast-track, essentially, that process. So, mm-hmm. so what may have been you know, a, a an eight to twelve month process will hopefully be be a lot lot less as um, as they as Peru as amongst other countries want to uh, want to build out quickly post development here or post COVID uh, and and get things working. So so hopefully you know when we can get back on the ground and that's still a moving target. Um, there'll be a backlog, no doubt, but uh, but the government is talking and the, up to the prime minister level about streamlining uh, these these permitting processes. You know, I just uh, looking at a lot of your assays. Uh, people need to know that this is you know these are pretty pretty spectacular assays. Um, you know, I'm looking here at 2.7 percent copper, 
Uh, and, and these are surface samples, of course, so we want to see that third dimension. But 29 grams per ton silver, which is a nice, cop- a nice silver credit, as you say. But, I mean, this is not – I mean, there's a higher grades of, of both of those metals as well in many samples. But just very extensive on surface, right? I mean, it's, it's just it's, – it's just mind-boggling in a way because the potential is. We don't know yet, of course, until you really start to drill it. And, but it seems to me, Michael, that you've got a project that is so large here, I would think that there would likely be some big guys, some big companies that might have some interest in your in what you're doing down there. Am I out of line in suggesting that? No, no, you're not, absolutely. And we have put it in our public disclosure that we are talking to a number of different parties because – because uh, the question is asked a lot, and and um, and it's no surprise, um, the new copper projects are hard to find. New copper basins are are, are even more uh, even harder to find. Mm-hmm. And, and we're in a, a a frontier area that has seen very little work. We've benefited, and we've talked about it before about the petroleum exploration of the 90s. That um, and that data has become freely available only very recently, and and we believe we're the first group to, to pull that data apart so it's given us a fast track to the geological understanding but uh, but you know there's there's a number of large copper companies around the world and 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 it's their job to know what's happening and uh, no doubt uh, they've uh, they've been knocking on our door as they 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 would and should and that's what I used to do as a geologist in a big company was to make sure I was up to date with uh, what was happening around the world and 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 we're in discussion with a with a number of parties and um, nothing else material has, has happened outside of that otherwise we'd be obliged to to put it in the public domain but but uh, but but we have uh, we have talked about that, and without tr- wanting to trump it up too much, it's a, it's something that happens quite a lot. But uh, this, simply put, this is a target for the big major mining companies. Right. This is this is not small, and it, and it has attracted a lot of interest. Right. Of course, you're not thinking at all about being a producer. You're you're an exploration geologist and have a really good one with a great track record. And uh, well, I just all I can say is, as a shareholder. I just hope you don't let it go too cheap if someone comes at you. Uh, you know, I mean, we've done very well. I don't know, three, four times our money, I suppose, since we told our subscribers about it. Uh, but I, I'm looking for something considerably larger. Maybe I'm being greedy, but um, it seems to me the potential is just enormous here, and uh, it's very exciting. Um, our our uh, listeners need to know there's no such thing as a, as a sure thing in this business. It's exploration. It's high risk, high return. Uh, and I think this has a chance for the high return part of that equation. So, Michael, anything else you'd like to add before we finish today? Uh, we, we haven't stopped, basically, Jay. Uh, we've got our, our tenure, and, and a lot of it is being granted, and it's still being granted as we speak. Uh, uh-huh. So we've got over 50% of the, the applications granted now. So that, that that's progressing. But uh, our work has actually identified more opportunities in the area in which we're working, and uh, and so we're, we're working behind the scenes. So there's the, the, there's uh, there's the anticipation of more, and uh, I can say that with confidence. That's that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Michael, very much for sharing your time with us and uh, being bringing us up to date on your very exciting story there in Peru. Well, that's it for this segment. Uh, be right back, though, with Alistair McLeod, who has some very, very important things to talk about, specifically in the banking sector. He thinks there's some real problems brewing ahead. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod.
NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Benchmark Metals is a gold-silver exploration company that is embarking on its largest program to date on the Lawyers Project with up to 50,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling planned in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group management team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Alistair McLeod, who's uh, certainly one of the most frequent guests in this show by popular demand, no doubt about that. And uh, so thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. It's always good to have you with us and uh, because of your insights in the markets and not only, you know, anybody can see this is going up and that's going down and this is going sideways, but why are they, what is, what's behind, what's driving the markets so that we can understand uh, and maybe plan for the future. But um, I, I want to talk to you um, about an article that you've written uh, on August 13th. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you again maybe to review for our listeners the repo market problems that occurred last September and why, and why that's important even now. Yes, um, we've almost forgotten that we had liquidity problems in the banking system. Uh, as early as September last year. Um, And to refresh your listeners' uh, minds, basically the repo rate, which basically is short-term borrowing, if you like, short-term liquidity borrowing, it leapt up to about 10% early in September. And uh, the Fed had to intervene because obviously if you've got overnight money running at 10%, that stands in a huge contrast against uh, the Fed funds rate, which at that time was something like one and a half to two percent. I can't remember the exact level, but it was a big, big difference and it needed sorting. So the Fed stepped in and started supplying the market. Now, we never quite knew why it was that there was suddenly this huge, great liquidity problem. I mean, I noted at the time that uh, it happened on the day when uh, Deutsche Bank sold its um, prime brokerage to uh, BNP. Now, it's quite possible that the hedge funds didn't go uh, uh, with the accounts. And uh, the result was that there was a, a shortage for either one of those banks 
or possibly both of those banks that uh, led to that spike in rates. But it took a long time to sort out. And we should note that when banks have liquidity problems, uh, this becomes extremely serious. And uh, not only that, but you have the possibility and it becomes very possible that you could be heading in, into some sort of banking crisis, dislocation, systemic issue, however you like to put it. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, my mind, was the importance of that occurrence. And it also happened at the time when international trade more or less crashed off a cliff because of the, uh, um, uh, the trade uh, um, uh, dispute between America and China. And, um, you know, various uh, countries were beginning to go into recession. Germany, for example, whose major uh, uh, trading partner was China, uh, entered a recession. And uh, this was, so, you know, there were ramifications of what had been happening. And furthermore, it was after about 10 years of a credit cycle of bank mm -hmm. credit expansion. And it was clear that that was very, very mature and likely to end. Now, the problem is that when you get an end in the credit cycle, you are, uh, as often as not, it happens actually quite suddenly, and banks have liquidity problems. So, that September, did it mark the end of the expansion of bank credit? It probably did, though mm -hmm. it's difficult to say that that's the case by looking at numbers such as money supply numbers and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. This is the sort of thing that comes out of the woodwork after the event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it seemed to me for the longest time we Americans could live beyond our means as long as we could uh, depend on the kindness of strangers, is the way it was put. The exporting nations, the nations that had lots of dollars from their net exports, would just recycle them into treasuries. But it seemed to me that there, that back in September, that that was part of the issue. That there was, and and you you point to the trade dispute between China and uh, you know the, a lot of different issues coming together there. But would you say that that, that that was really starting to come into play where America maybe could no longer depend, to, especially at these interest rates, could no longer depend on the, on the kindness of strangers as we once did? Yes, that's undoubtedly true. Um, the foreigners uh, maintain very large uh, dollar investments. Now, the reason they fundamentally do that is that they, uh, uh, look, they look ahead, if you like, to the trading relationship with America from mm -hmm. their point of view. And if they see it expanding, then obviously they're going to want more dollars, mm -hmm. which they hold in the form of cash um, through corresponding banking networks. They hold it in the form of investments in U.S. Treasuries, portfolio investments on, uh, on, on the stock market, and so on and so forth. So you've got a full range of securities. Uh, now, over time, this has actually built up to a huge number. Um, we're looking at about $21 trillion worth of um, securities, and by that I mean equities, bonds, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then you've got, on top of that, you've got a further five billion odd of uh, uh, bills, which include treasury bills, commercial mm -hmm. bills, and so on, and also bank balances, bank deposits, uh, which are all reflected in the banking system in New York. Now, um, uh, as soon as you start saying to these people, look, the outlook is uh, that trade is going to contract, then mm -hmm. at that stage, they begin to think, we've got too many dollars 
for our future requirements. Mm -hmm. So at that stage, they start lightening up. And mm -hmm. you can see that, uh, I mean, it didn't hit the markets uh, uh, initially, but uh, certainly um, it was, we've seen the dollar really tank from mm -hmm. that March 23rd high when it peaked at 102, and now it's yeah. down about 10%. So, yeah. um, you know, the foreigners are beginning to sell, and that is a bit of a headache for the Fed trying to fund uh, a, a ballooning budget deficit. Mm -hmm. And Michael Oliver told us in the first segment today that if we see 91 on the dollar index, uh, his, his technical work is suggesting that we could be looking at 84 fairly quickly. So that would be a, a huge decline uh, in, a, in a fairly short period of time. So, uh, well, well, if that was, if, if going back to September was sort of a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, I think you maybe have spotted another one in the GSIBs, uh, that is the uh, what you call the uh, what's the what's the an acronym stands for globally systemic important banks or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's global systemically important banks, and right. they're required to hold an extra level of liquidity compared with a normal bank, because obviously, I mean, the lesson, if you like, that was learned from the uh, uh, the, the great financial crisis was uh, that if a big bank um, it needs to be rescued, you got a real problem. So the answer was that these banks need to have at least um, a, a cash cover for at least 30 days commitments going forward, you know, look, mm -hmm. looking out, if you like, from, from on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. um, but the GSIBs actually have ended up, uh, I mean, the American ones are by and large in pretty good condition. There's only one which is a bit questionable, and that's uh, Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. But if you, look at, if you look at the European banks, I mean, it is actually frightening. The uh, Societe Generale um, has a price-to-book ratio of around about 18%. In other oh. words, investors are valuing the equity in that bank at less than 20% of book value. Wow. Now, if you apply that, bearing in mind that uh, what the regulators look at is the relationship between total assets and, um, uh, and balance sheet equity. But if you reckon that if you see that the market is valuing that balance sheet equity at only 18% yeah. um, on a price to book level, then you've got a new level of leverage which you've got to uh, really consider. And in the case of Societe Generale, that is around about 115 to 118 times. Gee. What that means is that if Societe Generale uh, has to write off a euro, um, the effect on the equity, if you like, is like 118 times on the value of that equity. Uh, equity is priced in markets, so we're talking notionally, notionally obviously. Mm -hmm. But you can see that uh, the markets are in effect saying that uh, there is a huge weight question mark over the future of Societe Generale, Deutsche Bank, Group Credit Agricole. And in the British ones, Barclays, and we've got another problem, and that is uh, with America uh, uh, roughing up Hong Kong. We've got Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, and Standard Chartered, and yeah. their shares are at, at, at their 52-week lows, which okay. is the other thing which I look at. If shares are hitting their 52-week lows, then there is trouble ahead. Yeah, and they've hit their 52-week lows while the indexes, at least, uh, are hitting new highs in the, in the U.S., uh, you know, we know there's just a few stocks, a few of the tech stocks primarily that are that are responsible for that, and and the market isn't nearly as uh, is healthy over here. The equity market is healthy as it appears to be based on the indexes, but nonetheless, the fact that the banks are doing so terrible, um, so much worse essentially than most other 
uh, market uh, equity market participants, right? Yes, that's correct. There's yeah. also another another worry. The the mm-hmm. big Chinese banks. There are four Chinese banks uh, listed in the GSIB list, and uh, we there was a, a very strong performance in the Chinese uh, the Shanghai stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, really running up to a peak, I think, on about the 7th of July. The banks initially went with it, and then their share prices collapsed and went all the way back. Now, I don't know what that's telling me. I mean, we, you know, we, we either love or hate the Chinese, but uh, the Chinese government, if you like, controls those banks, yet the mm-hmm. share prices pretty much collapsed. So, yeah. you know, does this tell us something? I don't know. I mean, yeah. the, the point I'm making is there is a lot of systemic risk around, and I mm-hmm. don't think anyone is paying attention to it. Well, it's not. It wouldn't be a mystery why the markets might be looking at these banks and thinking that, you know, that the, their balance sheets aren't reflective of their true health. Because you have, I think, what you have. I don't know if you would call this a depression. It's certainly a global recession with the COVID nineteen on top of the other issues that you talked about. So why wouldn't there be massive losses, bank losses, and all these banks are leveraged to the hilt? So I mean, it just seems logical that. Why would you want to buy bank stocks right now unless you really are confident that the central banks can generate growth, uh, you know, through, um, you know, th- through uh, monetary stimulation or you buy those that, you know, are going to be protected by the, you know, by the, sh- you know, too big to fail banks, right? Maybe that'd be yeah. another reason to own them. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, it is extremely dangerous. I mean, I, I don't think I would own any bank shares at all. Um, I'm not giving investment advice. But no. This is my personal view. Um, but what I'm, what I am actually more worried about is, uh, you know, where I have my my money deposited. Which banks? Are safe now. There are uh, small depositor protection schemes and all the rest of it. But you know, if let's say you've sold a house and the lawyers are looking after your money in their client account, that is not protected. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there are loopholes in this which you could find out the hard way, and yeah. um, this is not a nice situation. No. All right. Well, let's uh, go on to another topic. Uh, you've looked at March twenty third. If September was a really important point uh, in terms of that. Uh, in, in terms of the repo market, March 23rd, you've pointed to as a very important uh, date. Talk about that, if you would, please. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, your, your listeners may remember that the market tanked in the first um, uh, two months of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the S&P lost one third, fully one third of its, uh, of its value. Um, and then the Fed came out on March the 23rd, which was a Monday, and made a statement about what they were going to do about it. And basically, they said, we will do whatever it takes to rescue the economy. Um, and this was just literally as the lockdowns were more or less happening. I think in this yes. country, that was the date yes. of our lockdown. And uh, all the markets turned on a dime. They really did. You found mm-hmm. that gold and silver suddenly started shooting higher. I mean, particularly silver. Uh, the gold-silver ratio started to collapse from 120 uh, 125, I think, and uh, it's currently looking at 69, 70, something like that. Um, uh, and presumably it's got further to go. Copper, the price of copper shot up. Um, the price of oil has also shot up, though there was an interruption in that, because if you remember, there were these um, delivery problems on the April contract where, mm-hmm. where uh, oil was being delivered and people were long of oil and they had nowhere to store it. So yeah. the price went negative. Negative, but, yeah. 
Yeah, but apart from that, I mean, the, the oil price has uh, uh, gone up uh, quite substantially. Stocks of, I mean, the, the S&P turn, turned round and having lost a third, it has now regained all that and some. And as you point out, um, you know, the, there are elements in that that are really performing, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, tech stocks. But um, it was a big, big moment. And we knew at that time, that the Fed would do anything in its power, basically, which means that it would print money, even go into negative interest rates if necessary, etc. It would do absolutely everything it could to rescue the economy, to stop it going into a recession. And since then, of course, we have had massive monetary inflation. I was looking at the, M, uh, the, the narrow money, uh, M1, that mm -hmm. statistic. And uh, basically, um, it, from around about uh, uh, February, uh, late February, in other words, just before all that happened, yeah. uh, it has been expanding at an annual rate, annual rate of 60%. Wow. Now, this is quite something. I mean, ahead of the uh, Lehman crisis, uh, the, the expansion on that, on that money supply was about 8.8% per annum. That's a simple, you know, it's just a simple mm. calculation. Uh, following the Lehman crisis, it was 16.6%. In other words, it pretty much doubled. Now we're on 60. And not only that, but we have got yet more monetary expansion to come, simply because, as you point out, the economy is uh, ready you know, really very badly affected by uh, COVID. You've got supply chain failures, the whole thing. The Fed is going to try and rescue the whole US economy and also on top of that, the global economy, though they won't quite admit that. Yeah. So you can see that the amount of money printing that we're going to see in the coming months is going to even eclipse that increase of 60% that we yeah. have seen uh, in the first half of this year. Yeah, you know, what happens if we start having those, these banks start having problems and then they have to bail the banks out and print more money for that. So it's, it's very frightening in a way. I, I want to ask you about uh, Jackson Hole, the, the speech by Chairman Powell. And I understand, uh, I should tell my listeners again, remind them it's goldmoney.com for Alistair's essays that come out every Thursday. Alistair, I understand you're going to talk about uh, what Chairman Powell had to say at Jackson Hole. Just explain to us why that's important and, and what give us a little hint about what you might be writing uh, on Thursday. Yes. Um, as I'm sure we're all aware now, uh, uh, Powell at his um, virtual <laughs> presence at Jackson, Jackson Hole uh, shifted the goalposts slightly. Instead of a dual mandate, watching inflation, uh, trying to keep that at around about 2%, and the unemployment rate... Um, watching that and trying to keep it at a maximum level consistent with an inflation rate of 2%. He's basically said that, uh, you know, we're going to give more leeway on the inflation rate and concentrate on ensuring that people keep their jobs. Now, the problem I have with this is that the inflation rate which he's using is basically concocted by the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics and it says it's around about 1.6%, um, mm -hmm. and, and it's been running at that sort of rate, really, for the last 10 years on average. So, um, now, if, it was that, if that was the case, um, I would have no concerns. But you have got in America two wonderful people who, who actually calculate this independently and independently of each other. You've got the Chapwood Index, 
and you have got John Williams, who I think you've had on your program. Yes, absolutely, uh, at, several times. And basically, I think I'm right in saying, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think John Williams uh, uh, calculates that on the 1981 basis of calculation, in other words, before they started uh, mucking around with the numbers, uh, the rate of inflation since the great financial crisis, uh, after an initial dip, has been running at somewhere between 7 and 10%. The Chapwood Index, which examines the prices of 500 commonly bought goods in 50 cities, so that's 2,500 data points every six months, mm-hmm. has come to the conclusion uh, that, and there's, there's quite a bit of variance between cities, incidentally, but in, 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 in rough terms, uh, over the last 10 years, uh, the, uh, the inflation rate has actually been around about 10% on that mm-hmm. basis, mm-hmm. Uh, year in, year out. And in fact, yeah. uh, it, on the most recent figures, which are up to the end of June, um, it's actually picked up a bit. Uh, and so uh, so inflation is picking up, if you like, on that level. So we have a situation where uh, Chairman Powell is now saying he's going to downgrade the inflation, uh, 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 the importance of inflation, working off the BLS figures, 1.6%, when actually... If you look at the U.S. economy, the real rate of price inflation has been running at closer to 10 percent. Now, you know, this basically means that the U.S. economy has been in a slump ever since the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is terribly important because the only thing that has offset that has been the inflation of financial assets. So, you know, we've all enjoyed lovely share price rises. Bond yields have been kept low which means bond prices are high. And so all those wonderful things, if you have a lot of money and you play the stock market. Right, exactly. But yeah. for, for, for the guys in Main Street, and particularly, uh, you know, the, 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 the poor, the elderly, um, sure. and the underclass, I mean, is there it's any surprise you've got rights? I mean, you know, this is quite yeah, simply uh, appalling. Yeah, it's devastating. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time, uh, Alistair, but I, I would say that that is just, Powell is just being consistent with what he said back in March 23rd, then I guess you would agree, and that they're ready to let inflation run hot. Do you think they really believe the 1.6% uh, inflation rate? We do have to run, but just your quick thought on that. Yes, I think they do, because they have got no option but to believe in it. Uh-huh. That is the, pr- that they is have the to problem. Believe it. They have to believe it, and we all have to believe it, because if you actually take uh, seriously what Chapwood and John Williams are saying, um, your economy is screwed completely. Exactly, and so we would do well not to believe it. And, you know, uh, people on this show know what they're supposed to do with their loose change. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us again. We're out of time. Never enough time with you, but thank you so much. That's my Uh, pleasure. We'll have to leave it go at that. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, Bob Moriarty is my guest. And uh, as I mentioned, Corwin Coe of Sitka Gold is also scheduled to be with me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 